Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, CMO at BDEX, along with David Finkelstein, BDEX's co-founder and CEO. What's up, David? How's it going? Hey, Jesse. Uh, it's going well. Um, you know, it's uh, early in the week for us, so uh, not a lot to report on so far this week, but it's good to be back and uh, getting back into this. We, we missed a few last week uh, and the week prior because of some cancellations, but uh, it's great to see that we were able to reschedule and uh, this week we'll have two shows. So looking forward to getting it going. Definitely. Yeah, same here. Well, let's dive into today's, today's discussion with Adam Dornbush, CEO and founder of Intribe. He's a digital media executive with 20 plus years of experience building multi-platform businesses, both domestically and internationally. And prior to founding Intribe, Adam spent four years building the community content and rewards program at GoPro with his team licensing millions of photos and videos from the GoPro community for Super Bowl ads, the GoPro channel, out of home and in-store marketing. And as we were talking with him pre-show, so much more. Um, so we're looking forward to bringing Adam in. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, David. Pleasure Thanks to be here. Being here. Absolutely, Adam. Um, we're we're really happy to have you on the show today. And uh, why don't we kick it off? Uh, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your story. We talked about it a little bit before we went live, and I'd, I'd love you to share it with our listeners so they can hear what an amazing transition story you had from your your ex, you know prior experience before starting Entribe and how you got to founding Entribe, and and then a little bit about what Entribe is doing. Um, you know. Uh, would be helpful to for our listeners to hear. So, yeah, thanks. Um, let's see. So, I started my career, you know, twenty plus years ago, in a digital media, mostly acquiring and distributing television shows and films, putting them on the first video on demand television networks ever. So, I actually started one of the first VOD networks, and then started launching channels at a bunch of different platforms. Um, Stars and Encore, the movie channels. I built Vonga, which was the precursor to Star, um, Stars Play, which is was also licensed to Netflix for their first run movies. Um, fast forward everywhere from Tribeca Film, Access 360 Media. I landed at Current TV, which was Al Gore's television network, and we were focused on citizen journalism. And that was really my first foray into user-generated content. So we started acquiring user-generated content from all over the globe, and we ended up selling the company for half a billion dollars, which was a nice little exit. And then I ended up going over to GoPro. And Nick, the CEO of GoPro at the time, this is 10 years ago, tapped me and said, hey, you know how to license user-generated content from all over the world. We need to start doing this at scale because this is what's really building our brand. And I looked at him and said, you're not a television network. You're not a film company. He's like, no, but we are one of the biggest media companies in the world. We just don't know it yet. So he had the vision for what GoPro really could become. And this is prior to their IPO a couple of years and what he wanted to do was start acquiring the photos and videos coming off the cameras, really work with the creators to up the level of their content. So make that content better. And so we started a creator community, one of the largest ever created, and we started communicating with them. And they loved us communicating back because they were posting to social media at the time. This is still fairly early days of Instagram, but um, people were sharing their photos and videos on social media. We just had no control over what they were doing. So like a lot of brands experience, 
a lot of that content was off-brand messaging. It wasn't what we wanted to show. We didn't want to show fighting. We didn't love the fail videos. We wanted to show inspirational content. So we started finding the best creators out there, working with them at scale. And, you know, over the four years I was at GoPro, we probably licensed over a million pieces of content. We redistributed a lot of that content. And then in those four years, if you saw content on the news, on PlayStation, Xbox channels, on the back of Virgin America seatbacks, tons of other places, 99% of the time it came through my team. And we did an amazing job of controlling the brand message. And that's one of the things that really elevated GoPro to the sort of inspirational status that it has. Um, while I was at GoPro, I started realizing every brand should be able to do this, not just a camera company, because everyone's posting photos and videos of other brands out there. Why can't other brands do this? And I realized, well, I had a team of about 60 people under me. No, most brands can't afford that. But if I had a piece of software that sort of streamlined that process, I could probably do this with very limited staffing, maybe even just part-time person one, you know, one or two days a week. And so I set up to build Entribe, and that's exactly what we did. And now we do it for brands large and small, everyone from Hershey's, Circle K, large brands like Google, um, smaller brands that you've never heard of before. And we even university clients, beverage companies, international companies. Um, and we help them engage with their authentic community, whether it's their fans, their customers, their employees, their students, their alumni. And we help them engage through social media content, so through photos and videos. But then we work with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis to really up the quality of that content so that the brands can have a better experience with those customers. Those creators can sort of get pulled into the marketing fold. And it really increases the engagement of customers as well as the sentiment around those brands. And so that's what Entribe became. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's an amazing story. I love the transition, you know, from the work you did at GoPro. Everyone and, ev you know, anyone who's anyone has seen dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of GoPro videos, you know, over the years um, that have been shared. And uh, it, it shows that, uh, you know, everybody's sharing content these days, right? And so the transition to turn that into a, a business itself to help other companies um, curate that content content is super. Uh, I love it. Um, and of course, GoPro has a unique advantage because it's a camera company, but everyone's got a camera phone in their pocket that's high resolution yeah. these days. And people are sharing amazing photos and videos about the most about every brand. It's amazing. Absolutely. And that's a great transition into our first topic, which is how can marketers reach millennials with user generated content? You want to kick well, us off there, Adam? Yeah, happy to. So I think they have to. Um, I mean, user-generated content is how millennials communicate these days. It's not just through emojis. It's not just through text messages. More and more, they share their experiences. And if it didn't happen on Instagram, it didn't happen. That's what a lot of people say. So you have to engage through so user-generated content. Otherwise, you're missing the boat. Brands can only create so much content. The users, their creators, their fans are going to create way more than they the brands could ever do. So what we like to say is 15 years ago when social media really got started, brands started losing control, losing control of their voice. They lost control of their messaging because everyone's talking about the brand more than the brand can talk about themselves. Today, they're losing control of their creative. And so you need a way of engaging with the customers, controlling that creative, working with them on their user-generated content. Otherwise, you're missing the conversation entirely. Yeah, I can imagine that it's hard to track if you don't have something like Intribe. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you can have social listening tools and things like that, which is good. Um, you can have, you know, AI sniffing out sort of logo identification and things like that. That's fine. But people are still having that conversation out there unless you're having the conversation with them on those platforms. But also you need to create a one-on-one conversation with the best creators, the people that are really the power users, the people that are communicating the most about your brand. You really need to get ahead of it. And so by having a one-on-one conversation with them and that's labor intensive. It's tough having a conversation with every single creator out there. And mm-hmm. you're probably not going to staff up to communicate with 10, 100,000 creators. But with certain pieces of software, you can do it at scale very quickly. And the user can still feel that love, that attention. And with a little AI layered into it, which is what we do at Entribe, it actually, most of our brands spend less than two hours a week on that on this process. But they communicate with all of their creators that they want to. Wow. That's interesting. It's super. And, you know, us being in the data business and this being deconstructing data. So, I, you know, what intrigues me the most is the data behind it, because as you're, you know, engaging with your your customers and those customers are engaging with your brand, I feel like there is a lot of interesting data that's generated from that. Right. I mean, you can see who is engaging more. You can learn a lot about your your customers by looking at, you know, this level of engagement as well. Absolutely. And especially because privacy laws are getting much more restrictive these days and you're only allowed to see certain things on social media. So obviously Instagram's cracking down. TikTok may or may not go away. And even if it does stick around, it's going to get a little bit more secure. Um, Brands need to find other ways of learning about their customers and learning who they are, what they're doing, how they're engaging with their brand, how frequently they are. And if you have that one-on-one relationship, then the customer doesn't feel violated because they're volunteering that information to you directly instead of you having to sniff it out on social media. So if they're having that one-on-one conversation with you, we collect all sorts of amazing first-party data through the platform. We learn if they're uploading through a phone, we know where that phone is. We know what kind of phone that is. We know um, and we're tracking them over time. And so we know if, how things are changing with them. If they're moving around, we're tracking lots of different information. And then we also have AI that's looking at that content, comparing it against other content on the web. So we're learning sentiment. We're learning lots of things about those customers. And it's a one-on-one relationship. So that customer is voluntarily giving it to the brand, which makes it so everything's as secure as the customer wants. Wow. That's awesome. It's actually a really interesting value exchange. We always talk about the, you know, sort of the, the issue with getting first party data is you have to present the user with some value exchange, right? You got to give them some reason to want to give you that, that information. Um, and in this case, just sort of the freedom to share content and, um, and sort of the, you know, the, the engagement that they get by sharing that content is an interesting value exchange because it's like, you're not really asking anything from the user. You're not asking them to do anything. You're not sort of tricking them in any way. Like, you know, some companies feel like in order to get that information, they might give you some sort of, you know, discount or coupon or whatever it is. They, they feel like they have to give you something in exchange to get your data. And that's true, right? I mean, most, most people are just not going to give away this information. They're not going to fill out some massive survey and provide all kinds of information about themselves in order to get what, right? Um, But creating something that's engaging to the consumer, that's the value, right? Absolutely. And actually, it's interesting, a lot of our 
Right. And a lot of our prospective brands say, well, how much are you paying them? How much do you have to reward them? And I tell them there's best practices for how you reward people. But honestly, most of our brands just reward with social media credit. When the brand reposts it, they just call out that person's username. And that's usually enough for the the users. Some of our brands like give gift cards away or coupon codes to their e-commerce stores drives more revenue for them. Great. Um, but I say, you know, if you're using it in a big advertisement, like a billboard television commercial at GoPro, we used one in a Super Bowl ad, then you really should reward them with some monetary type reward at, that's appropriate to the level. I think at GoPro, we paid a, the, a dad throwing his kid in the air for a Super Bowl commercial over $100,000. That's fantastic for a Super Bowl ad. If it was just a social media post, social media credit's probably enough. But right, that value exchange, it's the creator isn't expecting to get paid like an influencer because an influencer is doing it as a job. The creator is doing it because they're passionate about the brand. They're already taking that photo or video likely in, or they're just triggered because you call, gave them a call to action and they're gonna go do it because they're interested in doing it. Very cool. That's cool. I, I like it. Uh, Jesse, we got a question from David Welborn. We did. And I thought you guys were kind of addressing it because you were talking about credit there, but it was, he was asking about attribution here. Mm -hmm. Let me pull it back up. And, you know, how do you apply attribution to the user generated content? Yeah. So that's a great question. We get that a lot um, too. So we calculate attribution in a number of different ways and it's really content. So some of our brands, like we have some universities that care less about the content itself and care more about community engagement with the students. So they just want the students to be participating with each other in sort of creating that social life. Other brands care about the actual value of the content because they're using it in their marketing materials and it's sort of a replacement for the creative that might have come from one of their agencies. So you can value it that way. Other of our brands care more about just creating a community of customers that are passionate and returning. At GoPro, we used to give away coupon codes to every single person that contributed content, even if we didn't use it, because they would go to our e-commerce store and it drove tons of revenue for us. And then we would pay the users if we actually use the content. They still run GoPro awards today. They still give over a million dollars away to the creators um, every single year. So I think it, attribution can be however you apply it. And we help our brands figure it out because some of our brands are saying, hey, we know we want to get into user-generated content. We just have real trouble figuring out how to value it and how to apply that value. And so we work with, typically in the first week, we help a brand figure it out when they become a customer. Very right. interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you heard of the term dark social? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it gets really hard to track. So that would be awesome if what N-Tribe is doing is helping to track some of that. Yeah. Um, but could you please discuss identity resolution in your words and the challenges of UGC? Sure. Well, so for us, it's a little different than most. So identity resolution for us it goes back to the content for us. So we try to ensure verification of ownership of the content and make sure that that person is actually taking that content and it also applies and they also have the rights to distribute that content. So privacy laws become very important here, creating that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the customer. And so we have some customers that are alcohol brands. We have to verify the person's over 21. We have other customers that are very sensitive about um, child labor laws and things like that. And so 
we have to, we also have a theme park as a customer. So you can imagine what's happening in the theme park. We have to make sure that identity is protected in very secure ways. Otherwise, you're really violating that person's privacy. So we are very, very careful. Everything that we do happens in the background. And um, we only release content when it's verified by the brand itself. But also, we, in many cases, the brand um, hires us to verify ownership. Sorry for the distractions there. Did you see um, David was asking and then you were, you kind of answered it, you know, do you ever run into licensing issues of music or backgrounds and the user generated content? And then, you know. So I sort of answered it, but I, I'll, let me expand a little bit further. Sure. Um, so we haven't to end tribe because we've been so careful because my background obviously is licensing TV shows and films for some of the larger studios and networks. So I've been very, very careful about user-generated content licensing issues. At GoPro, when we got started, we had a couple issues pop up, but obviously we ironed those out very quickly. Actually, one of them, one of the biggest ones was before my time there, but you know, we ironed all those out and yes, sometimes it has to go to the lawyers, which is unfortunate. Thankfully at, Go, at N-Tribe, we've never once had even a takedown notice, which is great. But I think that's probably just speaks to how careful we are with our customers and how careful we are with the privacy issues. Um, we do double and triple verification of ownership as well as reminding people of the terms and conditions that they're agreeing to before we distribute the content in any way. That makes sense. So, I mean, identity resolution is definitely a topic we've talked about multiple times in different ways, but maybe not from that perspective. What would you say, David? Yeah, it's definitely a different perspective, um, but it's interesting, you know, in, in the case that you described, you have a direct relationship with those consumers or, you know, uh, the brand does. And so, um, you know, they're, you know, either communicating by way of an app or, or within their website or something like that. So they, because they have that direct relationship, I'm not sure that they need to worry about the different sort of ways to resolve the identity you know, whether they're coming from different touch points and things like that. Um, but it's, uh, but I can definitely see how, there's a verification process because you want to make sure that that content's being generated by the, you know, uh, correctly by that specific user. Absolutely. And we also are very careful about our distribution mechanisms. Tip typically brands use the content on social media first, and that's the easiest way to identify if there is going to be an issue. It's easy to take down, obviously. We also have our own closed network distribution. So if a brand's trying to share content with a, channel marketing partners, such as at GoPro, we had obviously partners like Best Buy and Target, as well as ski and surf shops and things like that, where we had to distribute content to them for marketing purposes so that they could market GoPro within the stores and their marketing materials and their mailers, things like that. And so we didn't have a great way of distributing that content. I think we had like one Dropbox account for everybody. At mm -hmm. N-Tribe, we've created Media Hub, which is a very secure way of distributing content, whether it's going to your channel marketing partners, distributing it to your agencies, internal marketing teams that you have to um, get approvals from, from your lawyers, from other teams within the company. So we have very secure ways of doing that, as well as we track everywhere that piece of content goes so that if there is an issue down the road, which thankfully we will never have had, um, but if there is ever an issue, we know exactly who has it, where they got it, when they got it, and who to contact if we need to take it down. Yeah, that makes sense. And were you going to say something, David? Just said super important and, and that's great. To, to see that you're tracking that. 
And especially as users are getting wiser about distribution rights and how security and privacy laws, which obviously is a hot topic these days, users are getting smarter and they're realizing that they actually have more control than they thought they did. So it's getting more and more important. But 10 years ago, it wasn't that big of an issue. Now it's a critical issue for brands to protect themselves as well as protect their reputations. For sure. It's a really great sweat segue into topic three. Um, you know, at BDEX, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, first party data a lot, especially as, you know, Google said they're going to deprecate third party cookies and they continue to, you know, postpone it. So who knows what's going to happen there? But nonetheless, still a good reason to, you know, focus on your first party data and make sure you're you know using it in a way that um, actually helps your business, you know, because there's a lot of junk out there. Um, but why is first party data so important? in advertising today and, and everything that you're doing, Adam? Well, to really understand your customers, you need first party data, right? So to really understand who they are, where they are, to retarget them, but also to find new customers like them, you really need to understand what they're doing, not just in that one moment that they're interacting with your brand, but in their rest of their lives. So if you can find the people that are already engaging with your brand, and then go find out what they're doing other places. Um, but it's getting harder to track people through cookies and things like that because of privacy rules. Um, so why not create a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them? Why not actually communicate with them? And the reason that most brands will tell me is it's super labor intensive. I don't have that bandwidth. I don't have that kind of marketing dollars. Well, we can create efficiencies through technology. Technology can make it easier to do that, make, make it streamline the process. So think about Salesforce. Before there was a sales force out there, you had to do everything manually. Tracking a sales team at scale was incredibly labor intensive and incredibly inefficient. When Salesforce came out, Oracle came out, they made it efficient. And so now it's very easy. And the amount of time that you're using spending tracking your sales team is insignificant or significantly less than it was prior to that. Well, that's what we did at Entribe. We've created a platform to streamline this process of managing a large creator community that doesn't directly report to you. You know, a scalable creator community that could be international in, in levels, we can actually streamline that process, collect that data, manage that first party data for you and make sense of it for you. So we can analyze it for you using AI, using just a bunch of tools that we built into the platform. It's efficient now, which is a night and day difference. Wow. That's great. And Adam, uh, I have, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our, our own capabilities right here, because this, yeah. it's interesting how what you're describing segues directly into, you know, what we do as a, as a business for brands. And so here you have this great platform that, you know, helps create user generated content and, and, and make it, um, you know, actionable. And in the process, collecting some really interesting first-party data and think about it, that first-party data, not only is it super valuable, but you're looking at some of the most engaged people with your brand, right? And so if I'm a brand, I'm saying to myself, okay, well, I want to find more people that are as engaging as these people, because these are my best customers. Like these people are promoting my brand for me, right? And that's what we do. And so, um, you know, looking at those capabilities and saying, okay, well, Adam, you know, once you help that brand with the sort of, you know, engagement part of it, um, come talk to us, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because what we do is we actually then take that first party data 
and use a, a machine learning platform that we developed that does a complete analysis of those consumers and finds more people just like them. And then we take that audience and help those brands advertise to those people. And mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to say, okay, well, you know, there's this whole, you know, sort of storyline that says, okay, once you can get all these people engaging and you can take, get that first party data, you can then use uh, BDX's Omni IQ to then say, okay, well, I want to find more people that are just as engaging as these people. Mm -hmm. So we got yeah, to talk about that. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking I like the same it. thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are basically helping people aggregate. I loved your analogy of the CRM, you know, it's like a CRM, but for people who are out there posting on your behalf or posting for your brand. So you have all that first party data. Just imagine if you could learn about it and understand that audience from a marketer's perspective, you know, it's like, okay, I have, um, you know, on the side, I have my own show, uh, Whiskey Wednesday. And so if I could understand everybody who's out there posting about Whiskey Wednesday, who they are, what shampoo they use, you know, what, what they're watching on TV. I mean, I would love to have that information. And so, yeah, my head was going to the same place, David. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything you want to add there, Adam? I was just going to say, we do partner with a bunch of different platforms that offer similar type services. So like, it's not the same stuff of what you guys are doing, because I think it's hugely valuable what you're doing, like finding those engaged that, that level of engaged persona is critical for a brand these days because people go from brand to brand to brand and their brand loyalty is gone in most cases. Obviously there's some brands that are stickier than others, but if you can find the super engaged audience that really loves your brand or even people like them, it, it's hard to beat that as value. Like that's one of the best value propositions you can offer to a brand. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, well, on that, we should probably transition into our fourth topic, which is what might you share with brands using influencer content, Adam? You know, I sometimes say some negative things about influencer content. Influencer content is typically good. Um, you know, you don't have a lot of control over those influencers. People more and more are realizing that influencer content is typically inauthentic. If it is authentic, then why do they have to get paid for it? And if a brand, if an influencer is really hawking some wares just because they have a lot of followers, does that mean that someone's actually going to purchase that or purchase those things? No, because people are starting to realize that it's just an advertisement. It's just like hiring a celebrity. So instead of having an influencer, why not hire a true fan of your brand, somebody that's really engaged, somebody that's authentic? And more and more audiences are realizing that these days. We've actually done a, a bunch of different research studies, as well as there's a lot out there that you can go find that are showing that when influencers are hawking or showing off products, more and more people are not buying them because they feel like they're being sold to. Whereas if it's a general user, if it's a friend or somebody that you just follow on Instagram, that's showing off a product, it's authentic. They realize that that person actually likes that brand and they're much more inclined to purchase that content. And if a brand is showing off general user content, somebody that's really a customer, people can realize that it's not a paid advertisement. It's actually, and even if, it, even if they're putting paid dollars behind it to promote the content, that content itself was already authentic and people can smell the difference. So if you're using influencer content, that's fine. Don't need to stop. You can actually manage that process better because actually some brands use us to track their influencers. 
If you have more than 50 influencers, it's tough to do that over a spreadsheet. Use our platform. It's a CRM tool, just as good for influencers as general users, but we can also help you find more authentic creators for the brand. And so, you know, in summary, influencer content's fine, but more and more, especially as privacy laws get more strict and rules on social media get more strict around showing off paid ads, the general customer is going to be less inclined to be receptive to influencer content. Yeah, I think it's an interesting term, you know, the term influencer um, became sort of the norm. But if you really analyze it, you'll find that people are more influenced by their, you know, by people within the network, their friends, mm -hmm. their colleagues, their their family. And so those posts that are happening within that network are actually much more influential than the so-called influencers, as you as you said. 100%. I mean, I follow a handful of people that aren't my friends on social media, and you could call them influencers. They couldn't influence me for anything. I follow them for other reasons. I follow them just to see what's happening in their lives. They do something funny. That's great. If they're selling me a product, I'm not interested at all. I couldn't agree more. And as someone who's been approached by brands and asked to, you know, post for them, um, I actually turned it down because I was, I didn't want it to, um, you know, kind of ruin my credibility with my audience. Um, you know, so what they were offering wasn't obviously worth it for me to be able to like have sponsored posts out there because to me, the way I feel like I've been able to grow an audience, at least on LinkedIn, has been to be my own authentic self. So if I'm there, you know, throwing in these type of ads, then I don't know. So yeah, I think maybe we're seeing an end of end of an era coming to to a close from um, multiple perspectives, but maybe not because it's also super powerful. And I see, especially on TikTok, it seems like to be really prevalent. So um, who knows? But um, anything else you guys want to add on that before we get into tech stacks? I just think to reiterate that user user generated con content is just so much more influential, and mm -hmm. I, I think maybe with the help of your, you know, your, your product, um, we'll see that become more emerging. Yep. Yeah. I agree with you. I think, you know, to your previous point, it's the peers that are really influencing you. So the mm -hmm. term influencer, I agree. I think it's changing. And so when people call somebody an influencer, who is really an influencer? Is it somebody with 10,000, 100,000 followers or more, or is it really somebody's peer? that's the influencer. Yeah. For me, when I think influencer, for some reason, I'm thinking there's some sort of like monetary exchange, like you are being paid to post. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you think of it generally, like we're all influencers here, we are on deconstructing data, influencing uh, the, the eyeballs that are watching right now. Um, so I guess it just, you know, it's an interesting word. Um, but tech stacks, um, we have to ask Adam, what are some of your favorite tools that you use in your tech stack? Um, great question. So we are hundred percent serverless. So we are fully cloud, fully AWS, and we are distributed internationally. So it makes scalability in infinitely easier, um, which is fantastic because we do scale up and scale down based off of client needs, um, and just number of clients. So you know, that's probably my favorite, but also we employ a bunch of different AI algorithms. You know, there's a ton of them out there right now, which is great. And they're only going to, you know, double and triple over the next year and they're getting more powerful. So we use AI for everything from looking into content to be able to pull more of that first party data out to, 
you know, help brands identify who are their best creators, who are their worst creators, help brands sort through content in a much more efficient way. Um, also, identity verification is very important. So we use a bunch of different AI platforms that are layered on our AWS cloud servers. And, you know, that's really the core of Entribe is, you know, other than that, we've got a bunch of like large data warehouses that just sort of manage all of that data and make sense of it all. And so just being able to process that data at scale internationally um, and very quickly has been critical to the health of our company. Uh, well, I feel like we'd be doing our audience a, a injustice if we didn't ask you, you know, at least to name one tool, because we typically tag in like at least one company. So, I mean, are you an Apple guy? Are you a Microsoft guy? Or what, what's your what's your favorite um, calendar tool, maybe? So, of course, I, um, you know, we my company sort of lives and dies on Slack. We're on Slack 24 um, seven. You know, emails just gotten too cluttered and too labor intensive. Of course, we use a bunch of different calendar apps for scheduling, which helps and things like that. But, you know, Slack just helps us keep a, multiple conversations going and keeps track of it in a very efficient way as well. So, and you can have private and group conversations at the same time. And so between, you know, we outsource a lot of our efforts internally. We're mostly customer success and sales. Um, most of my tech developments outsourced. Most of my marketing and PR is outsourced to different agencies. And so we have different channels with all of them on Slack and being able to have all those conversations within one app and collaborative tools is huge. Definitely. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Slack because uh, BDEX started a new Slack community. Um, you want to mention and tell uh, yeah. everybody about it, David? Yeah. So and we started a Slack community community around data for ad tech. We call data tech and uh you know, it's still in its infancy and, you know, we're still trying to get engagement on that, um, speaking of engagement. Um, but uh, it's something that uh, we're hoping to grow and just give people an opportunity to share and learn um, through that community. So there's discussion groups in, in on identity and uh, AI and all kinds of other um, data related topics, typically related to ad tech or martech. Definitely. Yeah, we got to get more active in there and hopefully to like, you know, start sharing more uh, news stories of keep everybody posted of what's going on in the data world. Um, so, yeah, that's something anyone is interested in. Just reach out and we'll help you get into our new Slack community. Um, but, hey, we made it to the post topic section of the uh, show. And so, Adam, if you don't mind. If you could go back to a time when you first came into this industry, what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself? Hmm. Um, probably say yes to any opportunity. You know, it's much easier to say no. And most people are more inclined to say no until they, they've given a reason to say yes. I, I actually take the opposite approach. I say yes to everything, unless you have a really, really good reason to say no. You know, my career path took a very non-traditional approach, but I went from one job to the next job because I kept saying yes, because it sounded interesting, because I knew I didn't have a really good reason to say no. And it launched me to where I am today and I'm happier for it. So, um, you know, I encourage people to take chances, take risks. And, you know, if something goes bad, you can always figure it out later. But um, if you can say yes, you're taking those risks. You're stepping into opportunities when they're presented to you. 
That's good advice. I'll have to keep that in mind myself and say yes more. Um, Cause sometimes I feel like saying no is a skill. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. Um, it depends on the situation, but saying no is definitely a skill as well because uh, uh, you know, often people are, are quick to say yes and they get, uh, get sidetracked from, from where they really need to be. So um, saying no is a skill, saying yes is a skill, <laughs> balance, right? Um, yeah. But I think the important, you know, that all wraps into an important lesson we've discussed a number of times, which is, is just, um, you know, not being afraid to fail, you know, yeah. not being afraid to make mistakes. I think that's a, that's a typical entrepreneur's journey, right? I mean, you learn from your mistakes and you make lots of them and, and you learn a lot along the way. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's all part of it as well. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah, I think the saying no is keeping you focused, right? So I think say yes to opportunities, but you have to stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish. Certainly. Definitely. And DW added, be fearless. <laughs> Great. Uh, and going off of that, are there any lessons you've learned along the way from past jobs or, you know, this current role that you think everyone should know? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I pride myself on more than anything, probably anything else is hiring great people. And so working for great people, hiring great people is critical to success. Um, you know, there's been a handful of times where I've either worked for somebody that I didn't trust, I didn't like, or I've had people working for me that had similar characteristics. And those were always my least successful opportunities or um, times in life. When you work for great people, when you work for smart people, even if they might not be the most experienced in whatever field they are, as long as they're smart and they're trying hard, they might, they're likely to be more successful than somebody with a lot of experience that might not be as bright or as um, driven. So I say work for smart people that are willing to work hard, even if they don't have all the experience that maybe the person next to them does. That's great advice. What might you add there, David? Yeah, I mean, to that point, I mean, I've always tried to hire people that are smarter than me at something. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that's the, the I guess, to your same point. Um, if you yep. can surround yourself with with great people that uh, that are better at you at whatever it is that, you know, their task is, then uh, that is definitely a recipe for success. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, part of that is, is uh requires some some ability to be humble and, and realize that you're not you're going to be the best at everything right yep. and that there are going to be people on your team that are going to be better than you at something and you have to accept that uh, as an entrepreneur for sure i remember the first time i had to pay one of my employees more than i was getting paid hmm. and my boss turned to me and said well now you're a manager congratulations I'm like, <laughs> yeah. manager for 15 years no 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 now you're really managing because you're managing people that have more qualifications than you do for sure. Smart enough to hire them and be humble enough to do that. Wow. Without a doubt. It's a great advice. So Adam, uh, what secrets, tips, and tricks can you share with the viewers, um, primarily marketers, to prepare marketers for the future? Hmm. Um, start working with your creators now. So it takes a while to build a creator community, but they're already out there building creative. They're already out there working alongside of you, start working with them now so you can train them to build better creative. You can build your creator community larger. It's a snowball effect. It takes time to start working with them, but 
once you do, it just builds and builds and builds on itself. And so the earlier you get started, the bigger and more powerful it will become. That's good stuff. Well, uh, in closing, Adam, how can our audience find you? Uh, you can just email me, adam at ntribe.com. That's E-N-T-R-I-B-E, so engageyourtribe.com. Or you can just go to our website, and there's lots of ways to communicate it with us there. So ntribe.com. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, um, you know, it's a pleasure to have you on the Deconstructing Data podcast. You can find the Deconstructing Data podcast on all major podcast apps, YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Um, so po post-production, we, you know, chop it up, put it on a clip. So if you follow us on TikTok, of course, you don't see the full episode, just some highlights. Um, but, you know, we hope you'll check out BDEX's Omni IQ. Um, you can simply go, I'll put a QR code on the screen if you're watching, but if you're on the podcast listening, then, um, you just go to bdex.com and try for free, no credit card required, you can upload a list of your first party customer data and you get a few complimentary, um, data points on it. So you can understand their gender, household income and birth year. So then of course you can upgrade to find out more and then build some audiences on top of it. But anything you want to add on Omni IQ, David? Nope. You said it all. It's perfect. Um, thank you, Adam. It was great having you on the show and uh, look forward to finding ways for us to work together. That sounds great, David. Jesse, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. All right. Well, until next week, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. <laughs>